Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm, and I know I told you I was mostly taking this summer off to work on a book, but I couldn't resist coming back for this episode, given the stunning news Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer dropped on the world Wednesday afternoon. So to quickly recap, about two weeks ago, Mitch McConnell warned that if Democrats continued pursuing a big climate package, then Republicans would blow up Manchin's cherished bipartisan semiconductor legislation. In a tweet, he said that he wants to be perfectly clear. There will be no bipartisan USICA, that's the name of the broader package that includes the money for the chips industry, as long as Democrats are pursuing a partisan reconciliation bill. So again, McConnell saying he's willing to block the money for the semiconductor industry if the Democrats move forward with a broader spending package. Manchin fumed, calling McConnell as bad as the hostage-taking lefties in his own party. But days later, he announced he was walking away from the climate bill. Now, on Wednesday, a little after noon, the Senate passed that semiconductor bill. This chips and science bill is going to create millions of good-paying jobs down the road. It will alleviate supply chains, it will help lower costs, and it will protect America's national security interests. Four hours later, Manchin and Schumer announced their deal on a climate bill. Republicans were so livid that they took their anger out on a veterans bill, voting to torpedo legislation that would extend health care coverage to vets who got cancer from burn pits. They had recently voted overwhelmingly to support that. As we, in essence, yesterday took benefits away from the people who have been impacted by war that we sent off to war. And we turn our backs and say, no, we're going to find an excuse to vote against our veterans while we wave the flag, talking about how great our fighting men and women are. So how did we get here and where does it go from here? For that, I'm joined by Representative Ro Khanna, who has served as something of a progressive point person in dealing with Manchin throughout these negotiations. Representative Khanna, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Ryan, it's great to be back on. I wanted to start by um, asking how it was that you kind of became the the guy that was that was talking with Manchin, like you know, there's 435 members of the House, more than you know, what 220 plus uh, Democrats in the House. You know, what what made it that it was you that was kind of you know, texting and and talking with uh, with Manchin throughout this? Well, you know, I had a relationship uh, with Senator Manchin going back to my first year in Congress, 2017. I went to Beckley, West Virginia, with West Virginia Tech to help create. Uh, tech partnership and tech jobs in rural communities. As you know, that's been a big theme of mine. And I That's in your latest book too, yeah. Yeah, so I sat down with Senator Manchin before I went there and he was very enthusiastic about it. He was very helpful actually in connecting me with Gordon G. And we just uh, developed a relationship since then in terms of that collaboration. And then when the negotiations were happening, I would talk to him uh, occasionally uh, and got the sense that he really was for the investment part on the innovation. And I believed that because of the enthusiasm that he had uh, for the Silicon Valley and technology. 
And so would go on TV here and there and say, you know, I, I think he's negotiating in good faith. This was at a time where everyone else was piling on him. And I think he appreciated that. And that's how we just started uh, staying in communication and engaging on this. So when he walked away in December, you know, he did that, he did that famous Fox Sunday interview. I've always said this, Brett, if I can't go home and explain it to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. You're done. This is, this is a no. It looks like he even shocked the host. He's like, wait a minute, I just, I just make news here. You're, you're done with this. Was there a break after that? Or how, how soon did talks begin again? I still remember he called me on New Year's Day on, uh, uh, this year in 2022. And he was very upset, uh, upset that uh, he felt he was being unfairly blamed for walking away. And he said, look, I've always been for the innovation parts of the bill. I'm always for the big climate spending parts of the bill. And so I said, look, I'm willing to engage. And I think if you can get there on the climate spending, on the hundreds of billions of dollars to have a moonshot in clean energy, which your piece in the newsletter points out brilliantly, that will unleash trillions of dollars of private sector innovation money from my district and others, venture capital money, uh, money and people who want to bet on the future. That I said to Senator Manchin, if you can be for that, I, I believe we can get a framework and I will work uh, towards helping get uh, progressives and let's continue to meet. And then he actually was gracious. He and we, we talked a number of times. He invited me to be part of this bipartisan group. Uh, I was getting hammered by people uh, on our own side saying, why are you engaging with him? Why are you continuing to have a conversation? But I wanted people to know, I wanted him to know, I wanted the White House to know that uh, if we could get the investment, that uh, we would be able to get many progressive votes. And uh, I thought climate was the most important thing. If we didn't get this, uh, the whole thing would fall apart. And so his sort of working assumption was that if you don't get the whole kit and caboodle, that the left would walk away and you were and you were trying to tell him, no, actually, like there is a deal to be had here. Like the left in the house is a lot more willing to work with you than you might think. Is that is that where is that where he started? No, I don't think I, I think he wanted to, to, to work together. He was concerned, though, about whether it would be a, an all or nothing approach. And I think he trusted the, the working relationship we had. And he said, uh, OK, come into the conversation. So uh, I know what's important to uh, to progressives. Now, I didn't in any way represent that I was speaking for all progressives or for the caucus. It was more just a, a perspective. And what I kept uh, emphasizing in those meetings is if we can get the significant clean energy investments, if that number is consequential, and if we can get the CO2 emissions, that I believe that progressives and House Democrats will support that. And we desperately need a climate climate deal. And this was also, you, you know, I chair the Environment Subcommittee. So I was in communication with environmental groups, uh, with the NRDC, with Sunrise, with uh, a lot of other uh, the other groups uh, that uh, have helped us. And some of them had their own red lines and their own concerns, and I would raise them in, uh, in these conversations. Uh, but by and large saying, we all want to get to uh, a deal because if we don't get one in this Congress, who knows when we'll be able to act on climate. And when you say the bipartisan talks, were those the bipartisan energy, the, the attempt that Manchin made to put together a bipartisan energy deal? 
Yes. No, no. That, and I was in a number of meetings with, you know, Mitt Romney and uh, Lisa Murkowski. I mean, it was a, a bipartisan effort. But I knew early on it was probably not going to go far when there was a clear opposition from Republicans to any form of tax credits towards clean technology. And that's where I said, look, that is the the thing that we, we, we most need, that the climate groups, the climate activists, the uh, House progressives are most passionate about is the clean technology uh, tax credits, clean technology direct investment. If you take that away, there is no no deal. I mean, the, you're not going to get a deal just on permitting reform, and that's not going to meet the moment. And so, but I engaged. I engaged. It, it, you know, there were five, six, seven of those meetings, uh, and uh, I engaged because I think it was important for Manchin to feel that people were engaging him with respect that uh, uh, that he was uh, uh, being treated as a negotiating in good faith. And that's that's why I engaged. Now, you know, there were times you know, there have been a number of podcasts, et cetera. What is kind of doing? Why is he extending the benefit of the, the doubt to Manchin? When the guy gets everything he wanted and the thing still doesn't get passed, that's not an honest actor, Roe. That's not an honest actor at all. That's a guy who is playing you for a fool. And, you know, I didn't think necessarily it would work out. And at, at times I thought maybe I'd have uh, egg on my face. But I, I, I guess what kept me going is my knowledge that Manchin really liked the innovation part of it and was always drawn by technology innovation and had no uh, problems with that spending and viewed that as actually critical to make sure we led in, in, in not other nations. So that belief made me think that a deal was possible. What are meetings like that like? So, you know, from covering the meetings, I remember when, when there's announced, when it's announced that Manchin's going to be holding these, you, you hear a lot of Democrats saying, well, this is, this is an exercise that he just has to go through to kind of show to himself that, it's, that a deal is not possible. But when you're in the room and you have Republicans saying, yeah, we're not for any clean tax credits, like, what do you do for the rest of that meeting? Like, just, just as people, like, we're, like, once you've heard from Republicans that, yeah, these are interesting energy talks, but we're not doing anything about climate. It, it, like, how do you fill the time? Like, what, well, what are those meetings the like? talks were on uh, some of NEPA reform and uh, mm-hmm. what do we need to do on, on permitting. The permitting there is, right. look, there, there's reason even on the left, as Ezra Klein and others have written, that, you know, you want to make sure that for clean energy projects that there is uh, appropriate permitting and that that is uh, fast. And so, you know, not everything is perfect and there uh, could be uh, reasons to have uh, have reform. And there was a sense uh, of, well, what are the compromises that uh, we're going to make if we have this climate package and climate investment? But I think as the talks kept going, it became clear that people like uh, Mitt Romney just had a philosophical uh, objection towards government tax credits or subsidies towards this clean technology industry. Of course, he ran on that. Remember, he ran famously mm-hmm. against uh, Solyndra. So that became obvious. I think it became obvious to Senator Manchin. But I, I actually do believe that Senator Manchin went into those talks in good faith, wanting to get a bipartisan uh, agreement. It became apparent pretty quickly to some of the folks who were saying it from the outside. It was apparent even before the talks that the Republicans just weren't going to agree to the climate investment. But I believe it was essential to go through that process to have Senator Manchin get to where, where he is. And let's talk about the, the deal itself. So on the, 
on the climate side, we're talking or climate and what he calls energy security, we're talking, I think, $369 billion over the next 10 years, which, you know, is, is both not everybody. I think every scientist would say that's not adequate to meet 100% of the challenge. You'd also say it is probably the biggest investment in climate in history by any country. So what was lost by the sticks, by taking the sticks out? Because as you said, Manchin was all for the carrots, but he didn't like the sticks. And let's talk a little bit about how this money can be leveraged by the private sector, particularly as a representative from Silicon Valley. You see this a lot. We have an economy since the 90s that's basically been built on bubbles. And so I was thinking, like, if we're going to have bubbles, let's have a clean tech bubble. You know, let's let's have billionaires throwing absurd amounts of money at absurd projects, and if one out of a hundred of them uh, take off, you know that that could have you know exponential benefit to the to our climate efforts. Exactly. Well, first this extends for three years: the solar, the wind, the investment tax credit, and then it makes it under Ron Wyden's proposal a clean energy tax credit for investment and production, and it's an extraordinary tax credit that's going to incentivize private sector dollars in building solar farms, in solar manufacturing here, in building wind farms, in, in offshore wind, in battery development, in lithium ion processing here, because a lot of the processing is done in, in China. I mean, all of those investments now uh, are going to be incentivized. And by the way, to the folks who say, well, they're permitting challenges, if you're making it financially valuable to invest, that overcomes some of the permitting challenges. So it is going to unleash an extraordinary amount of investment, and it's going to create new manufacturing jobs. It's going to create a, a clean tech economy. Now, do I think that the original Build Back Better was better? It was uh, good, yes, because we needed the restrictions on methane, which is one of the most harmful pollutants and uh, one of the biggest causes of climate, and that is not in the package. We needed, uh, ideally, uh, some sense of regulation of carbon emissions that were in the previous packages. Uh, but as far as a positive moonshot agenda goes, uh, this isn't enough. But it is, as you pointed out, by orders of magnitude, the largest investment uh, our country or any country has made in climate. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what, what about Kirsten Sinema? How, what's, what's the mood in Congress around her? I don't want to say anything to jinx things. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, I just hope uh, we, we get her vote at this point. I don't want to take any shots. I don't want to 
do anything. Let's just get this passed. What about the house? Um, you've it's, it's always a balancing act, and the the majority keeps shrinking. One of Gottheimer's unbreakable nine you retired to become a lobbyist uh, recently, and that and he was replaced by Myra Flores, a Republican. So you're, you have a pretty narrow margin. How many Democrats are? Serving in the House now? like We have a four-seat majority. I mean, it keeps uh, fluctuating, but uh, I think it's uh, around four. So you can't lose many votes on the left or the right. What's, what's your sense? Let's start with the left. What's your sense at this point? I, I had heard from somebody high up at Sunrise yesterday that they were looking at this, and, and, and obviously it's not everything they wanted, but it seemed like they, they said it seemed like a deal worth, worth taking. What's, what's your sense of... In, in the in the progressive caucus and of whether or not this is a deal worth taking. Well, look, a lot of the environmental groups, Sunrise, the the NRDC, have put out statements, uh, put out tweets mm-hmm. saying that it's not ideal, but we've got to uh, do this. That these that forty percent reduction in emissions are are very good, and quite a few of the environmental groups that we deal with uh, are basically there. They have certain red flags, certain concerns, but are. Uh, for it. I don't want to say it's unanimous. There are one or two groups that think that the permitting that has been promised could create more of a fossil fuel infrastructure, and they have significant concerns. But I would say the majority, at least two-thirds of the environmental groups that we work with uh, are for it. And the, the sense I've gotten just talking to a few colleagues on the House floor and progressive colleagues is this is something that people want to do. They want to get it done. We have Senator Schumer actually talking to the Progressive Caucus today uh, making the case. You wouldn't have Schumer come to the Progressive Caucus uh, so quickly if it wasn't a desire to, to, to get this through. I, I guess the difference is that the caucus has seen things fall through the cracks so many times. Uh, time is running out. We don't want to leave the Congress without anything on climate. And this bill is not just window dressing. It's not just saying, oh, we did something for the sake of doing something. It is substantial. And just getting back to the conversations with Senator Manchin or the conversations with the White House that I had, uh, I always said you have to have substantial investment on climate. If you lose that, you're not going to get the votes. But you have this, if you have the substantial investment, uh, I think things will fall into place. And then, you know, going back to Gottheimer and the un- Unbreakable Nine, uh, which this was this group that wanted to make sure that the infrastructure bill got through, the, a, a similar group had also been saying no salt, no deal. You know, if you don't expand the salt deduction, you know, which which Trump and Paul Ryan had rolled back, which is you know the state and local tax deduction that if you have a decent if you have a decent income and you own a home uh, and you live in New Jersey or New York or some other high cost state, you you saw a higher tax bill as a result of this. And this group has been saying no salt, no deal. Now I, I talked to somebody really close to Gottheimer last night who said that because this doesn't really monkey around with individual tax rates and it protects everybody making under $400,000, no, no changes in their taxes, that, that he doesn't think that Gottheimer or Swozy or, or others who are in this no salt, no, no deal are going to hold the bill up. You know, on the other hand, this is like a one, two, three punch to a district like Gottheimer's because you've got the, far, the big pharma uh, negotiating or, you know, drug prices are coming down. You've got carried interest, so, which hits private equity and, and hedge funds, which are you know, that's North, that's North Jersey right there. Uh, and then you have no salt. So is there an appetite you think for some opposition in the house caucus, or do you think that Pelosi has the capacity to kind of push this, push this through given 
the turmoil that it's gone through over the last year and a half? You know, I think Manchin coming out for it makes it very hard for House moderates to uh, or centrists to, to oppose it. I think Manchin gave people much more room in the House. But when you say even Manchin is for it, there is a deal in the Senate. Now you're really going to block it in the House. I think that's much harder. And to your point, this is not really a tax bill. I mean, it's a bill that's going to get corporations to pay tax that they own. And people have been talking about closing the carried interest loophole for over a decade. I mean, even Donald Trump ran all that. So I, I just don't see Godheimer getting much traction. And, you know, we philosophically are in different camps, but he's a shrewd uh, political actor. And so I think he's going to see the tea leaves that this is not a fight that he would succeed in. And can we talk a little bit about the semiconductor bill as well? That was at the, you know, that, that played a, a big role in this. How, how did you feel like that bill came out? And and how, how much does it uh, kind of overlay with with your book, you know, Dignity in the Digital Age, where you talked about making, you know, significant investments in di- the digital infrastructure of the, of the future here in this in this country that and people can go back and listen to that episode several several months ago. But I didn't follow this. I didn't follow the ins and outs of the semiconductor legislation, but it's a big deal. Fifty two billion dollars is is not nothing. What, what's your what's your final read on it? It's a big deal. It's $52 billion on semiconductors and $80 billion on fundamental science investment in, in, in AI and quantum computing and in clean technology, by the way, electronics, manufacturing, synthetic biology. Here's the reason why this is so consequential. Uh, one of the biggest reasons we had the hollowing out of the working class, hollowing out of the middle class, 25% of loss of wealth since 1980 of the middle class in America is that we let production go offshore. We off, offshored it. Wall Street, we basically were beholden to the Wall Street profits, uh, to shareholder profits. Uh, all we cared about is lowering consumer price, increasing profits, and we shipped off the country's production. We, we never did that in, in, in what built America's economy. I mean, what won World War II was a victory of production. What built the middle-class economy was mass-producing cars, which we didn't invent, but we mass-produced, mass-producing jets. We invented the semiconductor, and then somehow we said, oh, it doesn't matter if we let the mass production go offshore. This is the first step where we're saying, no, production matters. We need a renewal of production. We need a renewal of new industry, the industries of the future, and that we're, this is going to create good-paying working-class jobs. And the progressives have had a constructive role in this and saying it can't just be a corporate welfare. It can't just be handouts to industry. It's got to be with strings of no stock buybacks. It has to be uh, with no dividends. It has to be actually investing in creating factories that are creating good paying jobs. And that was the bargain, actually, of FDR Democrats, where you had massive federal investment with the private sector to produce things, but under conditions of good jobs for workers, uh, under conditions of making things in the United States. And many of the CEOs, of course, back then took a dollar, but they weren't just going into CEO pay. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, McConnell knew that Manchin was, you know, a very strong supporter of this legislation and threatened to hold it hostage in order to kill the, you know, the climate reconciliation talks. What what role do you think that played? Do you have a sense of is Manchin very publicly was furious at that uh, and said, you know, basically, Mitch, this is this is not how you're supposed to legislate. You know, you vote on this piece of legislation based on its merits. He seemed as angry at Mitch as he was at, at uh, the Progressive Caucus for you know, holding up the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Do you think that played a role in solidifying his support 
for climate reconciliation? Was that something of a, of a McConnell own goal there? Because if you look at the timing, clearly they didn't write this 700 page bill in four hours after the, the chips bill passed through the Senate. You know, so they had come to a deal at some point before that and, and held it until after the Senate could move that through so that McConnell couldn't, couldn't blow it up. How, what, what's your sense of, of how that, how that played? I'm always fascinated the way that personalities can, you know, become like hinge factors in history. Well, look, first, this is a time that Senator Schumer deserves credit. I mean, there are many times where people on the left have been critical saying he's getting outmaneuvered by mm-hmm. uh, McConnell. Uh, here, it seems that he and Manchin have basically outmaneuvered McConnell successfully uh, and, uh, uh, and, and had a answer to McConnell's utterly cynical strategy. Because McConnell voted for the CHIPS bill. He knows that it's good policy for America. He knows we need to build semiconductor factories here when China's building 30 of them, Taiwan's building 19, and even with this bill, we're going to build 12. McConnell knows this is key. So he votes for it, and now he wants to sink it because he doesn't want the president to get a win on climate or reconciliation. So I applaud uh, Schumer and Manchin. I don't know this for firsthand, and it's speculation, but I believe that they were prudent not to announce the framework until chips uh, passed because they didn't want McConnell's cynicism to kill it. Uh, I do think that uh, they were going to get to a yes. I mean, that was my sense whenever I checked in with Manchin. I mean, it wasn't 100%, but, but I didn't think it would happen this soon. I thought it would be probably in September. And, you know, they were quite far along uh, and and were able to get there right after chips, which is strategically smart. I will say that, you know, the other thing that Senator Schumer did is they, you know, they had a lot of meetings between Schumer and and Manchin. And it shows that you really have to roll up your sleeves and get into the details of the negotiation process to get these things done. So I I think they both deserve credit. Last question. Uh, You had mentioned the, you know, the criticism that you were getting from uh, some of your allies on the, on the progressive side for engaging, you know, so long and continuing to hold out hope. Um, for for a deal with Manchin, how did how did that affect your your thinking? Because you're one of the you're one of the members of Congress, you know, who does seem to engage more with the the kind of progressive world than than most. What what was it What was it like going through that and, and hearing the criticism? Was there anything that you wanted to say that you couldn't that you can that you can say now, or uh, were you just hoping, man, Manchin better save me here by <laughs> coming to a deal because otherwise I'm going to look like a complete clown. Well, more more of the latter. And, uh, you know, there were times I didn't think that that would happen. But I guess I was just uh, moved by actually people in the movement, some of the folks I was talking at Sunrise and others saying, uh, we have to do something on climate. We can't come away with nothing. You keep going. You keep trying. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people said, uh, why are you being uh, so gracious to Manchin? Why are you saying uh, publicly good things about them. But when you're looking and negotiating and you're trying to get something done, usually insulting the person whose support you need uh, it isn't effective. And I guess my view is this. I am as bold about the direction of the progressive movement uh, as anyone. I am for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. I'm for free public college. I had co-sponsored the Thrive Act, which talked about $10 trillion of investment over the next 10 years is what we really need for a massive clean tech economy and building a new uh, industrial base. I'm for student loan forgiveness uh, of $50,000, not just $10,000. But I am also a believer that we have to be progressives who get stuff done. 
and that we have to get stuff done, not just aspirationally uh, for when we have a progressive president and a progressive Congress, but also in the here and now. And this should be seen as a progressive win. There is no way we would have had anything near $300 billion in the in the ballpark of that if it weren't for all of the activists, all of the environmental groups, all of the progressive momentum that made that a priority, uh, that insisted that those numbers not just be five or 10 or 15 billion, the type of investments we've done in the past, but 10 times the order of magnitude. So uh, I wanted to try to get that done, get, get, get a win. And I think the progressives are the governing branch, uh, are uh, a governing coalition. And, the more, and we, should, we should say that, we should aspire to that because ultimately that's what's improving people's lives. Well, Congressman Connor, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.